Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's the 10th of July. It's a big day. A big day in world history. Not just because it's the day before my sister's birthday, the happy day on which she closes the gap between our respective ages. No, it's because today marks the beginning of an important battle. After the end of the Second World War, a German field marshal was being interrogated by his Soviet captors. He was asked what he thought had been the decisive turning point of the Second World War. The Russians were hoping he would say the Battle of Stalingrad, the Battle of Moscow, the Battle of Kursk. And in fact, that German prisoner said it was the Battle of Britain. The campaign fought in the skies above, well, largely above southern England, but right across Britain, for aerial supremacy. An attempt to knock Britain out of the Second World War, either by convincing her politicians to throw in the towel, or by preparing the way for an actual invasion across the Channel. July 10th is the day, somewhat arbitrarily, as you'll hear, that the Battle of Britain is said to have begun. There was fighting in the air before July 10th, and there would be fighting in the air after the 31st of October, which is the nominal finish date. But for the next three months and three weeks in 1940, there was a titanic struggle for air superiority. The first major battle in human history decided by air operations alone. For this very special day, we have got all sorts going on at History Hit. We've got this podcast. You are about to hear from aviation historian Andy Saunders talking us through the Battle of Britain from his point of view. And you're also going to hear, interspersed with Andy's historical account, you're going to hear from Tom Neal, known as Ginger Neal, won a Distinguished Flying Cross and Bar, among other medals, during the Second World War. He was a fighter pilot. He was an ace in the Royal Air Force. He joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve in 1938, aged just 18. He was called up to full-time service upon the outbreak of the Second World War. So while still a teenager, he found himself mobilising to take on Hitler's Luftwaffe. He flew during the Battle of Britain. He's one of the few. First RAF Church Fenton and then RAF Northweald when he was absolutely in the thick of it. And as you'll hear, he tells the most extraordinary stories. This is taken from an interview I did with Tom Neal a couple of years ago. Very sadly, he died shortly after that interview was made. It's a huge privilege to look back on that now. The extended interview was published as a podcast a year or two ago, so head back through the archives and this and that if you want to hear more from Tom Neal. But I just wanted to bring Tom Neal back into this Battle of Britain podcast because he's such a, a remarkable man. Hugely missed. Uh, he died last year almost exactly a year ago now, uh, at the age of 97. Tom Neal, Andy Saunders and others are also featured on our new History Hit TV, Battle of Britain documentary, which we have produced this week. You can go to History Hit TV. We're making great history programmes for real history fans. We've done a programme on the Battle of Britain. Please go and check it out. You can actually check it out for free. If you go there, you get a month for free when you sign up. But if you use the code, I'm afraid it's back. The team have overwhelmed me. It is back. The five-month deal. For this Battle of Britain anniversary only, we are offering five months. After your month for free, you get five months. I mean, depressingly, that takes you through to Christmas. I mean, I can't bear it. Five months for just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those five months. So a fiver gets you through to Christmas. That's less than the price of a pint of beer, sadly, nowadays in some bars. For History Hit TV, the biggest the most exciting digital history channel in the world. All you've got to do is use the code Battle of Britain. One word, Battle of Britain. So please head over to History Hit TV to watch our film. Use the code Battle of Britain. You get a month free and then you get five months, just five pounds, euros, dollars and all. But in the meantime, enjoy this Battle of Britain anniversary podcast. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. 
our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Andy, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Good to have you at last. Thanks for having me along. Now, you've got heretical views, dangerous and terrifying views about the Battle of Britain, haven't you? Well, and let's start with, was it a battle? (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I mean, we all think we know what the Battle of Britain was. You know, it was fought during the summer and autumn of 1940. But really, it was a completely artificial British invention, if you you want to put it that way. Uh, Churchill first came up with the term, the Battle of Britain, when he addressed the House of Commons in uh, in June 1940, and he said the Battle of France is over, I expect the Battle of Britain is about to begin. So that was, you know, that was the Battle of Britain that is introduced to the British public and the world at large. But then, of course, when did it actually, you know, really begin? Because the Germans had had carried on. Well, they'd started their air assault on Britain actually in October 39. So it was really, there was just a continuation. It, it increased in tempo, and once they got fighters up to the um, up to the French coast, obviously it was that was a game changer as well. But as far as the Germans were concerned, I mean, the Germans don't recognise, if you like, the, the Battle of Britain as such. It was just all part of the air campaign. So um, during, I think it was 1940, middle of 1941, the stationary office produced a little booklet on the Battle of Britain. And they set the dates of the start of the Battle of Britain as the 8th of August, 1940, to the 31st of October. Completely arbitrary dates, really. Although, having said that, there was some merit in choosing the 8th of August because it was a really hard-fought day. It was the hardest-fought day of the battle up until that point. So there was merit in the 8th of August. But then along comes Lord Dowding, the former chief or the Battle of Britain chief of RAF Fighter Command, and he is asked in 1941, actually, he was asked to produce a dispatch for the London Gazette. That wasn't actually published until 1946. But in it, he says, well, I've been thinking about this. And actually, um, I don't think the Battle of Britain did start on the 8th of August. I think it started on the, the 10th of July. And he then gives his reasons for that. And he says, well, you know, it was the day when the, the big German air attack started, although he admits that there were previous heavy air attacks. And what's interesting is that there was a huge air attack on the 4th of July, um, when Portland was really heavily bombed, HMS Foil Bank is sunk, Seaman Jack Mantle gets a Victoria Cross, posthumous Victoria Cross, about 165, I think, sailors are killed on on the Foil Bank, which ironically uh, was an anti-aircraft ship and, and gets sunk by Stukas. But RAF Fighter Command, through no fault of Fighter Command, were, were nowhere to be seen. They didn't get off the ground, they didn't intercept the raid. There was a failure in probably in, in the in the radar system in that the the raid wasn't detected. So really, um, you could argue that quite strongly that the Battle of Britain started on the fourth of July. But of course, it would have been really embarrassing for Dowding to say, "Well, I think it was the fourth of July," because the immediate question would be, "Well, where was Fighter Command?" And of course, embarrassingly, they weren't there. So he sets these two dates. 10th of July to the 31st of October. 31st of October, again, is, is quite artificial. Certainly, the German air attacks were tailing off by that time, but they didn't stop, and there was heavy air activity on the 1st and carrying on into November, um, including daylight fighter activity. So you, you get this crazy situation where there was a chap who I interviewed many years ago 
chap called George Lott, who was a fighter pilot with 43 Squadron um, flying Hurricanes. And he actually gets shot down on the 9th of July. So the day before, Dowding subsequently says the battle has started. He's blinded in one eye. He's out of the war, effectively. And as he said to me, you know, nobody had told the bloody Germans that the Battle of Britain hadn't started yet. <laughs> so he was denied status as a Battle of Britain pilot. And then you get squadron leader Archie McKellar, who gets shot down and killed on the 1st of November. And although he was a Battle of Britain pilot, he was not a Battle of Britain casualty. A few days later, I think on the 6th of November, there's a chap called Sergeant Adair is shot down. Interestingly, you know, Sergeant Adair is actually alphabetically the very first name that you find on the Battle of Britain roll. He gets killed on the 6th of November, and again, he's not a Battle of Britain casualty. So, you know, I, I just find it interesting that everyone thinks, well, you know, we know when the Battle of Britain was, but actually it was just a complete, really, a sort of invention in terms of dates. It did exist, didn't it? I mean, there was a concentrated attempt by the Germans to win air superiority, air supremacy over Southeast England, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, nobody would, would uh, doubt or, or question that. But it, it's this whole thing about when did it actually take place? And I just find it interesting that somebody arbitrarily came along, albeit, you know, somebody as revered as Lord Dowding, and says, it happened between these dates. Well, did it really? You know, it's, it's just... And of course, on those dates also rest whether or not you qualified for the, the Battle of Britain clasp to your 1939-45 star, you know, so there was a huge amount of kudos that was attached to being a Battle of Britain pilot, understandably and quite rightly. But some poor guys were denied it at each end, you know. What else do we think we know about the Battle of Britain that isn't true? For example, let's go with the you know, German, the Luftwaffe vastly outnumbered the RAF. Well, yes, uh, they did. But, you know, as I think it's in, in, uh, famously in the Battle of Britain film, you know, uh, somebody says, well, they won't all come across at once. <laughs> um, but but yes, on, on frequent occasions, the RAF fighter command were, were hugely outnumbered. But, you know, numerically, um, if you look at a lot of the battles, um, yes, there, there, were, there was a huge disparity in, in the numbers involved. But you know, they did tend to come across, for the most part, in penny packets. And sometimes German bombers were coming across almost singly, you know, to, to carry out low-level attacks or whatever. They were better than us in all, almost every respect. The only problem they had, the Luftwaffe was not built in order to invade England. They were just built as to operate with the German army, which was perfectly good overland. It wasn't so good over the seas. So they had very short endurance periods. 39 litres would only give them about an hour and a half. So when they were in, even in northern France, attacking, escorting bombers as far away as uh, London, they would have to turn around and go back in about three quarters way through the flight. And the red light would come on in their cockpit, which must have been very upsetting for them, because they'd be 100 miles away from base with the red light coming on. And they had their problems. And, of course, they were over enemy territory. If they conked out, or, and they had a lot of uh, problems with their aircraft, really, one way or another, they would fall into the channel before they got home. That's a lot of people in the channel who have never spoken of. So we shouldn't think of the RAF as it shouldn't. It's not necessarily a David and Goliath story. No, it wasn't always. No, um, 
you know, there's, I think there's a great deal of, of mythology attached to it. And I'm certainly not, you know, attempting to be revisionist because I think it's just, a, it's just important to look at it, you know, retrospectively and look at it objectively in terms of what really was going on. You know, very often, although obviously we had radar and the Observer Corps and, and everything else, and, and we could get fighters pretty much in the right place at the right time, uh, to get aircraft to altitude to actually have the height advantage, which was important. You know, on many, many occasions, if you look at the statistics, RAF Fighter Command didn't have the, the height advantage. They, they just couldn't get to altitude in, in time. Give us another, give us another myth and, and help us un- understand what was actually going on. Well, I, I don't know if it's so much as a myth, but one of the other interesting things, actually, which is in Dowding's dispatch, uh, he talks about uh, British pilots being machine gunned on their parachutes when they've bailed out over Britain. Certainly, there are instances where we know that did happen, whether it was accidental or whether it was deliberate or, you know, red mist on the part of the German pilots, I don't know. But the very interesting thing that Dowding says is that, you know, it might not have been sporting, it wasn't really cricket. But actually, the Germans were perfectly entitled to shoot a British defenseless British pilot on his parachute because this man was going to land on home territory and he'd be free to fight the next day. However, Dowding then goes on to say, actually, the other way around, you know, it was completely wrong. Uh, British pilots should not should not have shot at German pilots on on their parachute. I don't think they they did. And as Dowding acknowledges on both sides, there was, you know, if somebody bailed out, it was very often the case that the opponent would circle round and there would be a cheery wave. But on, you look at um, some of the combat reports of um, particularly some of the Polish squadrons, there's one fairly chilling uh, report that I read quite recently where the Polish pilot concerned shoots down an ME-109 and he actually says, I saw the pilot trying to get out of the cockpit. So I shot at the cockpit. And I saw the pilot collapse back into the cockpit. And sure enough, you know, if we, we look at the, the records, we can identify who that pilot was and what was happening that day. And certainly the pilot was killed. So that was a deliberate act to, you know, to, to kill that pilot. However, you know, this chap was, was a Pole. They had completely different thinking towards the Germans. And, and I guess a lot of them, you know, wanted revenge. So it was perhaps understandable. But... There are all these little, you know, little quirky things that come out, particularly out of um, out of Dowding's dispatch, which you know, quite fascinating. We had a war on our hands; nobody knew anything about. And uh, my training on the Spitfire was really nil. I could fly it; I could uh, climb through cloud when I had to, and uh, you know, keep up with my leader, and not either lead in standing, flying past him, or or do things he didn't want me to do. But I was completely untouched. And there's one thing about it. I couldn't shoot to save myself. And I went up to Acklington with the rest of my squadron, which was our arm and practice camp. And something like 30,000 rounds against a toad drogue or a flag or whatever it was, I didn't hit the target with one bullet. How close did the RAF come to defeat in the summer of 1940? I, I think it, it certainly was quite a close-run thing. But really, you know, as we know, the Germans, um, the, the Luftwaffe, you know, kept changing their tactics. And had they actually understood, really, that, that attacking the radar stations, I think the, 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 the German 
perception was that attacking the radar stations was exceptionally difficult because they never saw any of the masts fall down, which they didn't. But what they didn't realise was that the, the radar stations that they did attack and put off the air, albeit temporarily, like Ventnor and Rye, I think, and, and possibly Dunkirk, which Dunkirk near Canterbury, um, some of those radar stations were put off the air at least temporarily because the infrastructure was damaged, electric cables, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that that would have that would have been a game changer because if they'd have just carried on carried on attacking the radar stations, perhaps rather than the airfields even, then the RAF effectively would have been blind. And and this you know that was a big part of the reason um, for failure, if you like, during the Battle of France, because the, the the French Air Force and, and we were flying with the French Air Force had no command and control structure, so. It was just a case of patrolling, flying up and down and hoping to find the Germans. Well, you know, that, that's, that was you know, a hopeless situation. So if, if we'd have been blinded in terms of the radar stations being knocked out, which would have been possible had the Germans kept at it, but they didn't really fully appreciate, you know, what damage they were doing or not doing, then that would have been, that would have definitely been a, a big game changer. And we should tell people because the radar information allows vitally important you know, pilots and hurricane spitfires to relax, stay on the ground, and then only actually get up in the air when they know there's a raid coming, rather than just patrolling around all day using up fuel and energy. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. Absolutely right. But of course, the other thing about radar, which isn't generally understood, or radar then, was that it only looked outwards across the sea. So once the, the raiders had passed over the radar station, they were blind, you know, in, in terms of what the radar could see. They could only see incoming raids. So once it had passed behind the radar station, it was then reliant upon the observer corps to continue plotting that, uh, that the course of, of the German aircraft. And of course, they might, the, the observer corps on some occasion lost them because of bad weather, the Germans changed course. And these are just lots of people on the ground making notes and, and ringing, up, ringing up somewhere like RAF Oxbridge with what they can see. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was on that information, the immediate information the sector controllers, well, in fact, cascading down from headquarters fighter command to to the group control and then down to sector stations, which were the smaller, you know, cascading down stations. It was that immediate information that was coming in from the Observer Corps that was all important to get the fighters in the right place at the right time. Um, but it didn't always work. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a perfect system, but it was the world's first, you know, integrated air defense system and it, it really it was it was amazing for what it was compare the spitfire and hurricane to the german fighter the me 109 oh that's always a difficult one i mean there were there were advantages you know and disadvantages with all aircraft uh, with all those aircraft you know many people think well the the hurricane perhaps wasn't a match for the me 109 but in fact it could outturn the 109 um it, it was a, a match for the 109, and a lot of pilots preferred the, the Hurricane to the Spitfire. Um, it was certainly a, a much more sturdy aircraft in, in terms of the da- the damage that it could take because of its its structure. Obviously, the ME109 had a, had a, another advantage in that it had a fuel injection system as opposed to carburettors. So this meant it could you know it could go into a, a pretty steep dive almost immediately. That was a bit of a problem initially with the Spitfire and Hurricane. And in fact, with the ME109 being able to go into such a steep dive immediately, when, when a pilot did that, goes into a steep dive in a 109, there was usually a, a plume of black smoke came from the exhaust. And that resulted in a lot of RAF pilots thinking they'd actually shot him down. But in fact, all he was doing was getting out of the way a bit smartish. 
So, um, yeah, uh, you, you know, I, I mean, it, it's horses for courses, Spitfires, Hurricanes, ME109s. The, the other thing, of course, is that Hurricanes were sort of traditionally believed to be the aircraft that were sent after the bombers. But when I interviewed a, a fighter controller, he said, well, you know, there was a bit of a problem with it. He said that that wasn't always possible because certainly from the radar traces, you couldn't tell whether it was a large formation of fighters coming over on a sweep or whether it was bombers. So actually sending hurricanes after the bombers and spitfires after the fighters was not always possible. So that that's a bit of a myth. And then for the 30 days of September, or throughout the Battle of Britain, I flew 141 times against the enemy. Sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times a day, sometimes four times a day, even five times a day. Starting at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, dawn, half an hour before dawn, doing, going on until 11 o'clock at night. There were no union hours in the Orient Fighter Command. And we lost a lot of people. Sometimes we were down to three or four aircraft to the end of the day. And we'd be replaced with aircraft by lunchtime the following day. It was a moving picture. And you were so busy with the events at hand. You were too busy to be frightened or upset. You just got on with the job. And you were apprehensive, of course, particularly when you heard information coming over the telephone because of the radar showings on the radar screen. 50, 50 the enemy building up over, over Calais, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. And you knew they're all heading for you. Frightening. And how many, how many, what about exhaustion? How many times a day you might use? Because I met Tom Neal said sometimes you might do five sorties a day and they must have just been absolutely, the pilots themselves. Where, where, what was the biggest, what was the biggest threat? Was it lack of aircraft? Was it the pilots getting knackered? Was it, was it the, you know, the, perhaps the, you know, the airfields themselves getting the attritional action on the airfields? Like what was the biggest sort of choke point? There wasn't any shortage of aircraft really. There, there, there was plenty of aircraft. There were, the, the supply of pilots coming through the chain that was a bit of a problem, and that was why a number of pilots came in from other commands, like Bomber Command, or even from the Fleet Air Arm, were posted in. So um, the, the attrition rate amongst um, pilots and those that were injured or those who were were physically exhausted, as you say, some pilots you know might have flown four or five times a day. There's one particular, uh, well, two brothers actually, who I've been researching recently, who were flying Hurricanes with Treble One Squadron in. Uh, in 1940, flying from Croydon, um, the Fisher brothers. And so there was Anthony and Basil Fisher. And they were flying together on the same squadron. And it was a bit like how they ended up on the same squadron, I'm not really sure. But, you know, it was perhaps as unwise as, for example, the, the Pals battalions in the First World War. Because these two brothers were flying side by side, and poor Basil gets shot down. His brother sees him shot down sees his brother bail out and actually sees his brother's parachute catch fire and watches him fall to his death. And in the squadron diary that evening, it actually says pilot officer, uh, flying officer, Anthony Fisher has been sent away on sick leave with a nervous breakdown. Well, you know, hardly surprising, really. So there was a lot of nervous exhaustion, physical exhaustion, just the anxiety of waiting for that telephone to ring to to go off on another scramble. It, it was, you know, it, it it was pretty hellish. And did did Hitler help to save the RAF by in August 
well, late August, early September, changing the focus of the German attacks from the infrastructure of the RAF to the the capital city, London. Definitely. I mean, that was a, a huge mistake. I mean, you know, going back to, to the point I was making just now about the radar stations, again, had they relentlessly, relentlessly attacked the airfields, then that would have, again, been a game changer. Um, as it was, a lot of the German intelligence was faulty, and, and they ended up attacking a lot of airfields in the southeast that weren't really critical RAF fighter command airfields. And they attacked a, a fleet air arm station at Ford. They even bombed Lim Airport to, to oblivion with Stukas, and there was nothing there. You know, I mean, it was, it was occasionally used as a sort of forward um, landing strip, but actually um, it was a, a big wasted effort. But had, certainly had the, the Luftwaffe really, really focused on going for the airfields, then that would, have, that would have absolutely changed the game completely. Attacking London on the, the, the 7th of September was for the Luftwaffe, uh, or for the Germans, was a, was a big mistake. And suddenly I looked over the side of my aircraft and they were all, we were all over North Wheel. And the airfield had disappeared completely and utterly. Enormous clouds of black and brown smoke. They bombed about 34, 300 bombs on the airfield. Our airfield had disappeared. And I remember thinking, oh gosh, the city of Blythes they bombed our airfield. How are we going to land now? And I don't remember what happened then. The bombers turned away, but were engaged by other chaps from the squadron who had taken off separately with us. And we went down. How, what to do? Well, there's nothing in King's regulations that tells you what to do when your airfield has just been bombed and written out completely. And we landed, weaving between the bomb holes like dirt track riders, hoping we'd not fall into the holes. And there were 300 or so holes on the airfield. But we took it all on our stride. And it's also true, by, because by attacking London, it removed the ambiguity and the, the command, fighter commands, you know, commanding officers could, could, you knew where the Germans were going to go. They were going to yeah. drive straight up Thames Estuary, so it was easier to attack them on the way there and back. That's absolutely right, yeah. Um, although they couldn't be complacent because, of course, they didn't know what the Germans were going to do next. And, and there, there was certainly there was there was a degree of certainty but the germans were still occasionally carrying out random attacks here there and everywhere and it wasn't just london and they did occasionally still go for airfields and uh, but very often singly um or with two or three aircraft bomber aircraft at, at low level so it wasn't entirely focused on london but largely so how close did the germans come to invading britain in the summer of 1940 that, I mean, that's a big question. I, th I think um, logistically, uh, they would have really struggled. I mean, you know, if, if you look at the logistics involved in D-Day, you know, I think the Germans would have struggled and most likely come a cropper. Despite the fact that we got depleted defences, you know, depleted army, they still got to get across that channel. The Royal Navy was still pretty strong, well, very much so, um, and could have caused havoc. Uh, certainly the Stukas might have picked off some of their capital ships, but it wouldn't have been uh, a picnic. It wouldn't have been a walkover. Uh, yeah, you know, the whole thing about, you know, uh, being unprepared and on our own effectively. Uh, but I, I think actually... Really, the German army, German forces would have absolutely struggled to to maintain to, to invade Britain and neutralise it 
and actually keep a supply chain going. Okay, they could have commandeered and acquired um, stores and equipment in in the bits of the UK or Britain that they'd um, conquered. But I, I think I, I, th- I think they really would have struggled. I don't think I don't think they personally. I don't think they would have uh, pulled it off. Do you think they were even realistically planning for it? Well, that's that's a big question, and I know historians have been arguing about that. Certainly, there were there were at least nominal preparations with barges and goodness knows what else being assembled on the the Channel coast. But realistically, uh, and in fact, I I spoke um, some years ago now to the um, to the son of a senior German officer who was involved in planning Operation Sea Lion, which was going to be the invasion of Britain, and and he said, you know, all the senior officers that were involved were basically saying you know what the hell are we doing here this isn't this is not going to work so there was there was anxiety at that sort of level and he was a general so you know he he was in a position to know and he feared that the planned invasion would be a failure in that case how should we think about the battle of britain what what did, how did it matter well uh, i mean at, at the time there was certainly a, a real fear that the germans were, were going to invade um and obviously, you know, the RAF, RAF fighter command had to, to counter the, the German attacks anyway. And certainly, if the Germans had wished to carry out an invasion or to attempt an invasion, then gaining air superiority was the, was the key. So they had to do that, and they didn't achieve air superiority. Equally, the RAF didn't achieve a complete victory either. It was kind of a bit of a stalemate. You know? <laughs> but the, the RF victory in the Battle of Britain was certainly important on lots of levels. I mean, it was also important, I suppose, on a morale level. Um, although whether people in Britain at the time, you know, actually well, knew that the Battle of Britain was over and that we'd effectively won it, I don't know. I mean, it, it, clearly <laughs> no invasion happened. Um, but that perhaps was the only signal, only indicator to the ordinary person in Britain that, that there had been some measure of success. But I think it's important to... Um, you know, to, to recognise, um, as we do, uh, the, the valour and the importance of, of RAF Fighter Command in, in those summer months in 1940. You know, whatever the period of the Battle of Britain was, you know, it's all a bit grey, you know, a bit blurred around the edges. But it, it was certainly a very, very important campaign. Given that it wasn't, as you say, not a sort of clear-cut victory, and I mean, it, the Germans failed in their attempt to... to either knock Britain out of the war through the use of bombing or achieve air superiority. So they, so they, Britain remained in the war in control of its own airspace. So in that respect, it, is, it, was, an, it was a sort of Hitler's first big setback. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. It absolutely was. Absolutely no question. And it certainly must have made German high command think and it made them realise that actually you know, what they were taking on here with, with Britain was, uh, was, was not going to be a walkover as it had been with uh, with france or you know some of the other countries although you know to be to be fair the the, the other countries france and what have you although they were overwhelmed and, and certainly in the in the run-up to the battle of britain and then the air camp the air war up to dunkirk the french air force despite the fact that they didn't have a proper command and control system i mean they performed magnificently and, and actually you know, secured a huge amount of success, despite the fact they were just patrolling up and down trying to find the Germans. But yes, for 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 the Germans, it, it was certainly uh, a salutary experience. I think up until that point, they'd very much had things their own way, and then suddenly, you know, <laughs> they come across this obstacle. Well, the English Channel obviously was a big obstacle, but but the um, the success and the prowess, if you like, of the RAF 
during that summer was, was something that absolutely made the, the Germans think. And if you look at the, uh, the memoirs of people or notes of people like um, Field Marshal Kesselring, you know, they, they were... It was a German, um, basically air marshal, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they were astounded at the, uh, the, the success of the, of the RAF encountering them. And then rather than, rather than have a Battle of Britain Mark II the following year, they decided to invade the Soviet Union instead. But I mean, the RAF, was the RAF prepared for another, another a spring, another attempt by the Germans to win control of the skies of southern England? Uh, there was certainly um, a belief that it might all sort of kick off again initially. But then, of course, British intelligence saw the, the Luftwaffe being gradually withdrawn from, from northern France and from uh, Belgium and what have you, and directed eastwards, with the Germans just leaving effectively a defensive force in place, although there were still raids taking place against Britain. It, it was very much low-key. And then, of course, there was almost a Battle of Britain in reverse in 1941, because... Um, RAF Fighter Command went onto the onto the offensive, effectively, escorting sort of penny packets, if you like, of, of British bombers by daylight to attack targets in northern France. The idea being to to draw the um, the, the the German fighters that were defending that part of the, the French coast up into action, and also there was a, a a feeling that by doing that, it tied up German forces on on the French coast, which might otherwise have been directed to to Russia and to the east. I'm not entirely sure about that because there were only two or three German fighter units left on the French coast. Uh, and the, the Germans, in any case, would not have left that coastline undefended. So uh, I, I'm not sure that it actually tied them up to the extent that they otherwise would have been sent to Russia. But certainly it, it was interesting that there was this, as I say, a Battle of Britain almost in reverse. They were flying what were called circus operations, rodeos, roadsteads, all sorts of weird code names. The effectiveness of, of that is somewhat questionable. And in fact, you know, the the numbers of RAF fighter pilots who were being lost in the summer of 1941 in this reverse Battle of Britain was horrendous. I mean, we were losing pilots on a daily basis and and, a, and it was different in that a british pilot who's shot down over britain who is unwounded his you know he, he's going to fight another day but of course he might come down on his parachute or crash land in france he's now a prisoner you know so he's effectively he might as well be dead as far as fighter commander concerned so really why uh, what you might call a battle of britain mark ii or a battle of britain in reverse was was fought is i, I think it was perhaps unwise of the RAF to have carried out the, the operations that they did over France at that time. And I remember uh, being on television with David Jason, you know, and he, he said, uh, I don't know, where did you sleep? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we just slept in our clothes. We ate in our clothes between flights. And I trained myself, I said, to uh, sleep at every convenient time of the day. And I grabbed him by the lapels and said, is there just a possible chance I'm not off as I'm talking to you, you see? Which raised a bit of a laugh. But that's it. We just slept between flights in our clothes. Sometimes we didn't even take our clothes off at night. Sometimes we flew in our pajamas. We did everything that was necessary at the time. Andy, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What's your, what's your latest? We've always got some exciting projects on the go. Just quickly tell us what you've got going on. I'm about to take on the edit editorship of a, a brand new magazine. 
which is a German military history magazine. Um, I'm running that with um, someone that you know well, I think, Rob Schaefer, a German military historian. Uh, the title will be called Iron Cross, but it's just having an objective look at German military history, very often through the eyes of the Germans themselves. Thanks very much. Good luck with it all. Thank you, Dan. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. 